Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book. All right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella, episode 42, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. The answer to the great question yes. of life, the universe, and everything yes. is, yes. is yes. 42. Assignment. 42? Is that all you've got to show for seven and a half billion years' work? I think the problem is that you've never actually known what the question is. But it was the great question. The ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. Yes, but what actually is it? Welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella. Podcast is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we take a thorough look at one piece of literature that we've both read, and we review it, summarize it, and determine whether or not it is, well, required reading. <laughs> this time around, we are looking at The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, because this is episode 42, and what else you're going to do on episode 42 <laughs> than this book? And the person laughing in the background here is my co-host. I am Tom Panneries, and she is the trillion to my Arthur, Stella. <laughs> it's me! Hey, thanks for the fish! <laughs> that was pretty funny to uh, have that. Yeah. Uh, how are you? Oh, boy. Uh, just trying to make it. <laughs> yeah. Really, all you can do is take it a day at a time. But um, having, you know, going outside and walking has been good. And sometimes I actually walk with someone that's nice. Or just, yeah, talking to you, which is nice. So having this sense of normalcy with the podcasting mm -hmm. world. Yeah. But, yeah, I uh, feel bad just that I can't really engage with my students as much as I would like. So it's weird teaching online. So I'm more appreciative, I think, of homeschooling parents and students because now I know what it's like. But, yeah, weird times. Yeah. Are you getting tired of seeing your own face in Zoom windows? 
I don't do as many of them as you do. I had office hours today, which some yeah. students actually showed up, and I just do voice because they don't really need to see anything, and I can actually just present a Word document and work on it to show them like what to do. So they don't, I actually don't see my face. Oh, okay. Yeah. We have, we have meetings and stuff by them too. And I know I can like have my video on, but turn my, me seeing myself off. But then I worry that I'll be making some sort of face or doing something. And yeah, but yeah, I've been self-conscious for quite a while at this point. Oh, no. So yeah, it's been, it's been, I've been trying my best to keep to some sort of, routine mm. you know like i'm up the same time i always am every day you know i'm showered and dressed and you know breakfast is the difference between you know my mornings when i was at work and or when i was working you know at, at school and and now is that i'm not getting out the door at 7 30 in the morning in my car i'm just you know logging on and i get a lot of work done before nine o'clock which is kind of nice because by the time i hit around like two three o'clock in the afternoon i'm pretty tired um and even like a day like today where i have maybe two students check in with office hours and i really didn't have as much to do as i thought i did do you like you put so much energy into trying to get stuff done or trying to find things to do that you get like exhausted from it you know yeah yeah so but yeah you're right and and i've been trying to you know take walks work out where i can and uh you know just but there you know there are days where everything's like okay fine and then there are days where the you know the 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 stress of or the anxiety that comes with being bored and feeling like you're not doing enough and stuff kind of gets to you. So it's kind of nice to have a weekend, though. Yeah. You know, like when people who other people who are teachers will understand what I mean by that. When when you spend a lot of weekends as a teacher doing work in some capacity, and I really try to minimize that anyway. You know, I try to have my weekends, but. On the weekends, during the, in the normal weekends, even when you're not doing something, you feel like you should be doing something. Yeah. Because you've got all this work that you brought home and it's sitting in your bag and you're like, oh, my God, i got to do all this. Well, we're home. We're not – you know, we have office hours. We might have the occasional meeting or something. We might be doing stuff with some of the students. But we're not teaching four blocks or three blocks a day. And then the planning period is not taken up by putting out fires, so to speak you know, immediate fires and stuff. So like we actually have the time that we've always wanted. So we're getting a lot more done. And by the time the weekend rolls around, like, you know, granted, I don't do much. I just kind of sit there and read or, or whatever, but it's kind of nice to not feel like you can do that and not feel that, I don't know, guilty mm, because, yeah. you know, <laughs> so. Yeah. It kind of has encroached. You're right. I, I didn't really think about that because I very much tried to not bring my work home with me. And so mm. now it's like the only place that it can be. Yeah. So, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So. All right. Well, we are doing the, the, Hitch the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, um, which uh, – and that was a terrible segue, but what are you going to do? <laughs> I guess go from pandemic to the destruction of Earth. Yeah, I guess so. Um, within the first chapter. Uh, <laughs> this is probably one of the geekier novels that we've had on the show. We've done a few science fiction pieces um, you know, 84, Fahrenheit 51, we did um, Station 11. But this is this is one of those that has like, you know, this book has like a crazy cult following. And then it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's one of a series and stuff. And I'll get into that all about the author. But before we do that, I wanted to we always talk about like what our history of the book is. So what is your history with with the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? <laughs> I my only history <coughs> is a good friend of mine that I went to governor school with where uh, and governor school 
not the summer one, but the year round one where you yeah, go yeah, for yeah. yeah half the day and then come back to your homeschool. Mm-hmm. And he he loved it. He would always 27 and 42 were his two favorite numbers. I don't know the 27. I don't know if that's in a sequel, um, but 42 at least. And you know, this was mentioned and everything. And so my only history is knowing that he likes it and I knew it was beloved, but I just, I had never read it. So this Mm -hmm. is the first time. And I knew there was a film, but I think I remember it, people not liking it. I've actually not seen it, um, that it wasn't as successful, but, uh, yeah. So this is my history with, um, Hitchhikers. This is the second time I've read it. I read it, about 10 or 11 years ago, it was just one of those, it was a book that I'd always heard of. Um, I knew people really liked it, but I just, it was, I guess I never got around to reading it. You know, like one of those many, many books like that, where like you mm-hmm. hear about it, you hear about it. You're like, oh, I really want to read that. I really want to read that. And you finally get around to reading it. So I got around to reading it like about 10 or 11 years ago, um, laughed hysterically through it. And I was just telling you before we went on the air and, and, and a few weeks ago as well, I, for the life of me, cannot find my copy. I think I may have loaned it to somebody and never gotten it back. So I actually have the library's copy of it, uh, which <clears throat> we're under quarantine here. I There's not much else that, you know, they're, they're not exactly looking for it right now. So I may I may get to read it again. Uh, but this is my second time reading it. And I've never read any of the other ones, although I think they're on my they'll be on. They'll be added my t- to my to read list at some point. So. Mm. All right. So let's go ahead and get into the history of the book the uh, bio of the author, Douglas Adams, and we'll get into the plot summary and and have our discussion as we always do. Douglas Adams was born on March 11th, 1952 in Cambridge, England. He began writing at a fairly young age while he was still in school. He attended St. John's College in Cambridge, and he got his start as a writer in the student comedy club Footlights. It was through this that he was discovered by Monty Python's Graham Chapman. Adams would wind up writing for Monty Python's Flying Circus and was on several episodes of the television show. He also wrote for Doctor Who in the 1970s. The idea for The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy came, according to Adams, one night in Innsbruck, Austria, when he was very drunk and out in a field looking at the stars. He happened to be carrying a copy of The Hitchhiker's Guide to Europe and thought, somebody ought to write The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So there you go. From there, he did wind up writing it originally as a radio series. It was broadcast by the BBC in 1978. The novel came in 1979 with a television series to follow in 1981. That starred most of the original radio cast. A feature film was released in 2005. The book is actually the first in a series of six. It's been jokingly referred to as a trilogy. Mm. Adams would wind up uh, following up The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy with The Restaurant at the End of the Universe, Life, the Universe, and Everything, So Long and Thanks for All the Fish, and Mostly Harmless. <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah, I'm going to mispronounce I think it's like Ian, E-O-I-N, Colfer would add a sixth book after Douglas Adams' death, and this was entitled, and another thing, this book was approved and sanctioned by Adams' widow. 
Adams himself died of a heart attack on May 11, 2001 in Montecito, California, but this book and the rest of its series have had a pretty enduring legacy, including a large fandom and references that are made throughout geek and popular culture. These include the number 42, which is in the book that we're about to talk about. That is the answer to life, the universe, and everything. It is commonly referenced in geek circles. The 25th of May is celebrated among his fans and even in some cities as Towel Day. The online translator Babblefish, which launched in 1997, takes its name from the translator Fish in the novel. Radiohead's album OK Computer and the song Paranoid Android are references to the book. (laughs) There are two asteroids named for Adams and his work, 18610 Arthur Dent and 25924 Douglas Adams. There is a fish species named Bidenichthy Beeblebroxi. You're the Latin teacher. Um, a moss oh, species. Oh, I thought this was a made-up name. It's actually a species. It's they've named the species after oh, after okay. yeah, a moss species, <laughs> Erechtheus Beeblebroxi. Okay. And in 2018, Elon Musk's company SpaceX oh. launched a Tesla Roadster into space. The words "Don't Panic" were on the dashboard display, and included in the Roadster were a copy of the novel and a towel. All right, so I stole the pro- I, I stole the plot synopsis from Britannica.com because I had this report due on space. He had a report due on space, and then he got the new encyclopedia. I think I made that abundantly clear. <laughs> Arthur Dent, whose house is about to be demolished for a planned road bypass, is lying down in front of a bulldozer when his fe- when his friend Ford Prefect arrives and tells him that it is imperative that they go to the pub immediately. Therefore, it explains that he is actually from the planet near from a planet near Betelgeuse, and that another alien spaceship, the Vogons, are about to destroy the Earth to make space for a hyperspatial express route. Meanwhile, Zaphoi Beeblebrox, president of the galaxy, and his human female friend Trillian seal the heart of a golden spaceship. Ford and Arthur hitch a ride on a Vogon destructor ship, and Ford lends Arthur the electronic guidebook, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and gives him a babblefish to stick in his ear to translate alien speech. The Vogon ship has captain has Ford and Arthur ejected into space, but the Heart of Gold, which has an infinite probability drive, picks them up 29 seconds later. The drive makes it possible to traverse interstellar space almost instantly, but also causes Ford to briefly turn into a penguin. Zaphod sends his depressive robot Marvin to escort the hitchhikers to the bridge. Later that night, the Heart of Gold reaches its destination. The legendary planet Magrathia, which in the past built planets to order for wealthy customers, but later disappeared. However, Magrathia, after sending a message that it is closed for business, fires missiles at the Heart of Gold. The ship's computer is unable to take evasive action, but Arthur engages the infinite improbability drive, and the missiles turn into a sperm whale and a bowl of petunias, (laughs) both fall to the planet's surface. Everything seems fine, except that Trillian's pet mice, Benji and Frankie, escape their cage. On Magrathia, Zaphoi, Trillian, and Ford explore the planet's tunnels, leaving Marvin and Arthur to guard the entrance. Arthur encounters an elderly native of the planet who introduces himself as Slarde Bartfast and explains that the populace is not dead, but were sleeping until the economy improved. They are now engaged in building a second Earth, having been commissioned by mice, which are really hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional beings, to build the first Earth. These beings had built a supercomputer, Deep Thought, 
to determine the answer to life, the universe, and everything. After a period of 7.5 million years, the computer declared the answer to be 42. The computer designed a more powerful computer, Earth, to find the question to which 42 is the answer. Earth had nearly completed its calculations. I think there were like five minutes left or something when the Vogons destroyed it. Slarda Bartfast brings Arthur to meet the mice who commissioned the building of the Earth, and they prove to be Benji and Frankie. Zafwad and Ford suggest that Arthur may have some ideas about the question, as his brain was an organic part of Earth, and Benji and Frankie decide that they will buy Arthur's brain and chop it up to look for their answer. Arthur, Zafwad, and Trillian are saved by the arrival of the Galactic Police to arrest Zafwad for the theft of the Heart of Gold. Marvin depresses the computer running the ship and life systems for the police into committing suicide, and the five travelers all escape to the Heart of Gold, after which they head toward the restaurant at the end of the universe, which, as I said in the summary, is the second book in the series. So that is a pretty... It's actually a pretty decent summary. Thank you, uh, Britannica.com, <laughs> for, for that. But the first question we always ask is, uh, did you like the book? You know, I'll tell you a short story about myself, and it's that I am somewhat influenced by things that go before it. So, for example, I read Hunger Games and really loved Hunger Games, and then someone let me Divergent and didn't like it because they're just, like, too similar, and mm. I just really liked uh, Katniss more. Gotcha. And um, in this case, I read <laughs> The Shining right before <laughs> this because I was waiting because I was trying not to buy it. I was waiting for it to come in in the library via digitally and just waiting and waiting and it finally came in. And so going from the shining to this was a bit problematic. Mm -hmm. And so in the beginning going from the shining and, and kind of how that is laid out and the seriousness and suspenseful to like in your face comedy was jarring for me. And so in the beginning I was like, this is too much. It's okay. I'm going to be one of those people that says like, it's okay. And then everyone will be really upset. But as I continued it and I got farther away from the shining and I've had a couple of days to think about it more, I will say that I did actually enjoy it. And one of the moments that, cause there are some hilarious moments but the one moment that i laughed out loud is actually when marvin was talking to that ship and they're like what happened to the ship and he said it committed suicide because he had been because he's manically depressed and that's just yeah. i had not expected that at all and i just like guffawed out loud um but yeah there's some kind of ridiculous moments in there and improbable moments intentionally so so yes mm -hmm. i did enjoy it Good, good, because I really do like this book. I Like I said, it's only my second time reading it. The first time I read it, I laughed like out loud several times. I find the idea that Earth is destroyed because of essentially uh, development. You know, they're going to they're going to bulldoze it because they need to build a highway. Yeah funny just really funny and especially since obviously mirrors the scene at the very very beginning because it's right going to his house <laughs> and and just like you know having you know grown up in the suburbs where they did they literally did that to entire neighborhoods and it's just i was like this is brilliant satire and 
that's appropriate coming from me whose favorite scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail is the slop collector scene. You know, strange women lying in ponds is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power comes from a mandate from the masses, you know, that whole (laughs) thing. I find that scene just to be one of the funniest written scenes ever in in, in film history. So that joke at the beginning where they're like, yeah, we're bulldozing Earth because we have to build a freeway. It hooked me in the first time. And there's a very small joke later on in the book that had me laugh out loud and I still laugh when I think about it but I will um, I think it's one of my I think it's in the questions so I'll bring it up later so let's talk about the fact that it is humorous because humor Mm. is not easy to pull off Mm -mm. on the written page Um, it's not easy humor is very hard to write if you've ever tried to be a writer you've tried to write humor um, not everybody gets it when you're intentionally trying to be funny it doesn't always work, trust me, because I'm not funny when I try to be. And um, not every, you know, and, and if you have to explain the joke, as I tell my students when I do the satire unit, if you have to explain the joke, it stops being funny. You know? Right. So, yep. is this is this sophomoric in its humor? Is it sophisticated? Is it both? Can, like, can you rate the humor that we have going on here? Yeah, so I actually was thinking a lot about this because I wondered why in the beginning it turned me off. Like I said, it was a bit jarring for me. Um, But as you contemplate, I think everything, all the humorous moments, I think it is both. I think you also have gallows humor because there's a lot about like death is coming at them basically at every point. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for example, well, hold on before I say my example. And there are jokes that are started before you even know that they're started. So I feel like even though maybe that punchline is sophomoric, it's really complex in how it's set up. So there are times like they're in the um, airlock chamber, I guess. And Arthur, what's his friend's name? All the people's uh, names. Thank you. Yes. So Ford is saying, oh, we've got a good 30 seconds, you know, yeah. and then they're sent out and then there's a gap of time. I think something else is going on. And then you come back and you find out with one second to spare, you know, a ship picked them up. So they'll lay the groundwork for and that was pretty close. But there are other times where a joke will be set up in the beginning and it seems out of place and a non sequitur. You're like, how does this even connect? And then it'll come back later on. So I think there's a sophistication in that. Um, I feel like also it's British humor, which Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'll necessarily be able to describe the difference between British and, you know, American. I also think like American humor is more crude potentially than British humor. But um, I just, you know, like, for example, Arthur, I think, is thinking about all the things that he will never get to see again. And it's like different states. But then he gets to like McDonald's and it's like, oh, no, or whatever. It was a burger place. I'm pretty sure it was McDonald's. Yeah, it was McDonald's. Yeah. So it's just, you know, I think almost commenting on like our actual culture that, yeah, of course, we probably would be more concerned about those those sorts of luxuries and things than than other stuff. So I think there are moments that uh, a bit sophomoric, um, but then, you know, fun time, the aliens, the greatest threat is that they will read poetry to you, you know, so it's like these (laughs) weird little things. So I think it's a great mix and blend. And I think it is also sophisticated in how the groundwork is laid for it. And then something will pop up that you weren't expecting that connects back to something that at the time had, you had no clue what was happening. 
Yeah, I think that's one of the brilliant things about about the book was that, like, you know, that there's a punchline that comes much later than the setup did. And when you go back to uh, you go back to earlier in the book, you're like, oh, wow. You know, you realize how well structured and thought out some of these these jokes are. And, and that doesn't happen a lot in in literature or or it's when it happens or and it doesn't happen. At all, even if we're, if we're thinking like movies, to, it tends not to happen without being telegraphed enough so the audience knows when to laugh. Mm. And, um, you know, because sometimes I, I think sometimes film uh, film for a mass audience tends to cater to the more like kind of the lowest common denominator. So you get this sort of, you know, it, it doesn't sometimes the filmmakers don't comedic filmmakers don't trust their audiences, especially bad comedies. I don't, I can't explain the difference between American and British humor either, to be completely <laughs> honest with you. But there is I, a difference. There is a difference. Yeah. I don't know if British humor is more absurdist in some mm. places. I, I, I can't, because it's, it, it, there's sophistication in both, but it's a different flavor of sophistication. You know, because there is a te- intelligent American humor, but there's, it's just, yeah, you, you can, I, maybe it's a culture thing or what, because like, uh, of its time, one of the better juxtapositions between like American humor and British humor uh, would be Monty Python and like Mel Brooks. Both had movies in the mid seventies that were really, really popular, like Holy Grail and Mel Brooks had like Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein and both have very immature jokes. And they also have very, you know, they have some pretty witty, sophisticated bits, but there's, they're definitely of a different, you know, you could definitely see a different uh, style to it. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. And I think what it does is that, I mean, I, I'm no, I am no authority on, on comedy or humor. Um, but I've watched a lot and my comedy origin story is Looney Tunes. <laughs> you know, I mean, Same. Just like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And, and I, I've, I, you know, I've taught Shakespeare and I always try to ta- teach the high comedy, low comedy concept in a Shakespearean mm. play, you know, and, and like, um, which students don't necessarily get because we've told students for years that Shakespeare is Shakespeare. You know, it's this it's this sophisticated thing that you go and you don't understand because it's Elizabethan English from 400 years ago. And in Macbeth, which is a very dark play about murder and, you know, and tyranny, you have one of the better jokes about what happens to a man's erection when he has too much to drink right (laughs) after they've killed the king of Scotland. And I've had to explain that joke to my students. And they're like, oh, my God. I'm like, yeah. Like I said, go back and reread the play you had to read in ninth grade. There are so many sex jokes in there. Twelfth Night opens with a with a joke. I mean, it's it's so so. There's a lot of low humor in Shakespeare, and I've always explained that. But I always use the, you know, I say, you know, I I I, I think of myself as a smart person who likes a really witty, smart comedy, which is I think why I like The Simpsons. There's some witty, smart stuff in The Simpsons, but they're also like you know some really dumb jokes. And I've always said, you know, I cut my teeth on the Looney Tunes, on Looney Tunes, especially stuff like Bugs Bunny and um, and the Roadrunner. And I know every time the coyote opens up that box that says Acme on it, what's going to happen? But I don't care because I'm going to be laughing anyway, you know. So, so yeah. So this, I like the fact that Adams knows to go when to go for the stupid jokes. 
but when he does but he also has some really sophisticated and really really good satire in there mm. it's one of those works that where you can appeal to like even a younger audience i don't want to say dumber but like a, maybe a younger audience or an audience that doesn't have as much knowledge of of certain things when they're younger or whatever and they can really find this funny and as they get older if they reread it they might get more and more out of it. Mm. Like they find jokes that they didn't see because yeah. I don't know, they hadn't experienced that mm-hmm. or, or, or what, ha- or what have you. So that, that's one of the things that I think helps this novel endure. What's your take on the satire of government bureaucracy <laughs> to business? Like these, these institutions yeah. that he's clearly having fun with. He's the whole concept of, of planets being created because the rich need something to, to own, you mm-hmm. know, what do you think of that? Yeah, and especially because uh, that was interesting. I think the government one is one that I really zeroed in on. Just I think in mm-hmm. terms of you know the United States current government right now, I thought cool. this is really weird. Yeah, uh, which I texted you what I what I thought of um, was his name Zabrox. Zephod, uh, yeah. Rocks? yeah. Oh man, I'll just have these character names up. I We're gonna butcher them. these characters. I know. This entire episode, people. So, so uh, just don't, don't, don't come mansplaining to us. Oh yeah. About the correct pronunciation of the characters oh, in this book, because neither of us is gonna get this crap right, except yeah. for Arthur Dent. You know. That's yeah, funny. that works out. Yeah. Though whenever I hear his name, for some reason, I think of like a Batman character. Harvey. Yeah, Harvey Dent, and then Arthur. What's his last name? Uh, Joker's like original thing. But anyways, it just like yeah. reminds me of him for some reason. Um, yeah, no, that was that was really interesting. And just like the setup of how people get elected and that, you know, f- at first I think it was presented that no one would ever expect Zaphod to run for president. And then when he did, you're like, oh, of course, he should definitely be our president. But the only reason he was president was to steal this. So there is always this. um like one thing is a means for another. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's really mm-hmm. interesting uh, to to make fun of some of these institutions. And it does a good job because I think it gets at some heart and truth of some of the things as well. Business. Can you give an example of like a business model? Or um, I guess would that be the planet? The whole planet thing, okay. the fact that this one, the whole culture went to sleep until the economy got better, you yeah. know, like just little, little bits like that. Yeah. You know, um, the no. one guy r- running the pub. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. That little guy. Um, but no, I, I feel like it is effective. I feel like to a certain extent it is timeless. I think perhaps there are moments in time that it becomes more relevant than others. But this one was this written, did you say? The late 70s. Late 70s. Yeah. And so now, you know, we're concerned now about the economy, right? So there's that mm-hmm. uh presidency and government like I said that's just really interesting. I feel like it's more relevant now. But yeah, that's why I'm thinking about those things. Yeah. And and um there's a very long footnote uh, there's a couple of footnotes in the book, and there's a very long one about the whole imperial presidency thing. Um, it's on in my copy. It's toward the end of chapter four. Uh, it's page like 34, 35 uh, in my copy. And it says that I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it explains like Zaphod's full title was president of the imperial galactic government. It explains how the emperor has been nearly dead for many centuries, but it's just this 
term imperial is kept. It's now an anachronism. And the president's actually a figurehead. He wields no power. He's just chosen by the government. And he's just kind of this thing that they have to entertain people or something, like, you know, to draw attention away from power or whatever. Um, and he's really successful at it. And he says, you know, the last part of it, very, very few people realize that the president and the government have virtually no power at all. <laughs> and of these few people, only six know whence ultimate power is wielded. Most of the others secretly believe that the ultimate decision-making process is handled by a computer. They couldn't be more wrong. This is clearly a swipe at, like, the monarchy or mm. something, right? Like, you know, how the queen actually doesn't really do anything, and the royals are there almost for, like, at this point, they're like an amusement tabloid fodder thing. And, you know, I think they'd still technically call themselves a British Empire, but, like, you know... There's the sun never sets in the British Empire in the late 19th century, and then there's like you know, sorry Andy, what we have now, which is you know, the, the Britain's got some territories and things like that, but yeah, you know, like you know, there's all the pomp and circumstances surrounding this, but like you know, like really, so I like I like kind of that bit, and I I always like footnotes in books like that because I always like humorous footnotes like that because it's just these, it's almost like an aside in a play, you know, where where it, it's a breaking the fourth wall. Uh, or the author t mm -hmm. talking directly to you. And, and when they're executed really, really well, I find them very, very funny. All the bits and pieces of this, especially the way they like they, they show you the, the snapshots of the different things through the Hitchhiker's Guide itself, I find funny because he's having fun with culture and this idea of, like, you know, who you are as, as a traveler and things. And, and, the, uh, and the fact that the Vogons just, like, were able to do this even though they and not know or not care that earth was that important because <laughs> of miscommunication and everything yep. it is that is that is bureaucracy defined you know mm -hmm. like this has to go through seven different people and the cover sheets have to be on the tps report and and all that crap before you know before you realize yeah like, oh what yeah i did doing, forget about you know? all that yep yeah so it's it's just it's so that's what I love about it so much. Um, and even though it's like, you know, it's the literal destruction of the earth. Yep. And, and it's true for and, his um, house, too, because it said like the plans were in City mm -hmm. Hall or wherever they were. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, we got I just we could talk about the characters a little bit. We've got some like just silly characters who I'm hoping get more even more developed as we go through the rest of the novels. Mm. I feel that they're about they're they're not underdeveloped. I feel that they all have distinct personalities, but they're all sort of you can tell that there are more books coming by the way this this is. You know, that they're still kind of in their little trope type of or or archetype type of things and and we're still kind of finding things out and finding things out I, I and i hope that like as we go further and further into the series you you get to know them even more but like you know what did what did you think of our um of our hero so to speak <laughs> of our protagonist arthur dent which is interesting right because there's a bit of a conflict between who the hero is you know, because I was a bit confused at the beginning who – with whom I should be – in whom I should be invested, you know, as mm -hmm. as our as our protagonist. And, of course, you would think the first person we see is, in fact, our hero and then Ford. And then there's a moment after the Earth blows and Ford is still okay. But I think there's this moment of doubt. You don't know where Arthur is. And I thought, oh, that's it. <laughs> it, it actually is Ford. And I think without – Arthur 
it wouldn't be it would still be fun, but I don't know if it would be as I was going to say down to earth, uh, relatable <laughs> because, yeah, I know because Arthur plays this crucial role as someone where that is his eyes are open to all these crazy things. He's having these kind of acid flashes, you know, going through hyperspace or what other mm-hmm. kind of stuff oh, like that. Um, the hologram kind of scene. I remember that was weird yeah. for him too. And so for him, that's for us, like the readers can be in Arthur's place. And so as he's experiencing all these weird things, cause everyone else, this is like normal, even for Trillian, this seems really normal, which is weird once you find out who she is. But mm-hmm. Arthur, uh, I think is, is a great person for us. And he has his moments of great humor as well. And the sarcasm, which is interesting because it said at the beginning that Ford didn't understand sar- sarcasm. So I think because Arthur has, a sense of humor that uh, he makes for a great character. And then in the end, he's the one who gains the most information because he, he sees everything. Uh, and it seems like he's the one kind of who saves the day to a certain extent. So you see him go from this like piddling earthling that's like, oh, that earth man. That's all he's referred to as someone who is kind of uh, getting used to it and maybe a hero who knows. So I I liked him. I mean, he was boring in the beginning, but I think that's like the intention. But he's also someone who is laying down in the mud trying to prevent a bulldozer from destroying his house. So there's also something that's not boring about him. So I like Arthur. Yeah, the, and the question I had to follow up was like, how do his common mundane sensibilities help him when other characters are unable to act? Because mm. because it looks like he, you know, Ford. I mean, even though Ford is his friend there, and and the others are friendly to him to the most part as well. Like he is kind of seen as the naive, you know, yeah, the hick, you know, because they picked him up on this backwater planet that you know was not, you know, that everybody on Earth was completely unaware of any of this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know how, how does that actually work to his advantage? I feel like he has maybe common sense where others don't, or people maybe, I don't know if maybe he sees big picture and they are just zoomed in too much. Because I'm trying to think mm-hmm. of the circumstance where he thought of something that nobody else did. Uh, I can't remember what it was because they're like, oh, that's such a great idea. I don't know if it was the ship when they were on the ship and it was spinning out. I can't remember. But there was one distinct moment where he like came up with something and everyone uh, thought that that was uh, a great idea. So I, I don't I think it is his background that he's maybe able to see big picture, uh, whereas everyone else is kind of uh, their own lun- lunacy. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. especially since Zaphod, he's got his brains issue. Um, yeah, I guess that's his close maybe as i can get to an answer there i wish i could remember that scene do you remember what i'm talking about i'm flipping through my book right now. there have been so many like they're in danger but i feel like everyone was on there i don't know if it's when they're plummeting down to space oh yeah because doesn't he say let's use the improbability machine yeah that's what it yeah so he was the one to come up with that and you would expect the people who number one stole the ship because of the improbability or trillion who's kind of been in charge of the whole thing but he's the one that is like duh why don't we use this because we have it so i think he can kind of look past all the weird stuff that's going on and and Mm -hmm. find a solution whereas other people can't yeah yeah what do you think of marvin (laughs) 
Oh my gosh. The the paranoid android of the radio the itself. The paranoid man or manically depressed android mm. that's just like one you know listening to probably um Green Day and yeah. you know oh yeah. Uh, really interesting. I think to a certain extent it's too much uh or we're on the I would say we're on the line of too much just that Mhm. He doesn't change at all. So it's just him always being uh, depressed. And, of course, then he goes on the adventure. Um, but then I will say that that was probably one of my favorite parts when he said that that ship committed suicide because he had been yeah. talking to him. Um, you know, I wonder what his purpose is, you know, besides being this artificial intelligence that's modeled on human behavior. I suppose maybe there is a commentary there, which is interesting mm-hmm. in 1978. I'm trying Trying to think because I feel like anxiety and nervousness because there was something about that uh, in this particular book as well. I remember there was some line about anxiety and nervousness is at its height or pinnacle. And then you've got this android that is like representing all that. Um, so it almost is like, you know, a true commentary on humanity and where we are now, which is ever more so true. Now I feel like we are at the pinnacle. Um, but other than that and kind of making fun maybe of, of humans and their anxiousness, I'm not sure what sort of purpose Marvin has besides just being, you know, good for a laugh or two, but I think there is a, a safe spot of too much Marvin, and we were like edging closer for me, anyways. We were edging closer because it's the same joke all the time. Whereas everyone else, you've got different jokes that are coming back, but he's always just manically depressed. And how how far can you play that? We have all these alien races. We have the Vogons, and we have Zaphod, and we have the, you know, <laughs> the the um, oh god, what are they called? The the race that. Uh, that created the computer, Magrathians or whatever they are, yeah, uh, Magrathians, like, you know, yeah, Magrathians or something like you know. And the the Hitchhiker's Guide itself is kind of our our little italicized look at them. A bit that I don't want to say that like Paul Levitz and Keith Geffen <laughs> stole it from Douglas Adams for the Legion of Superheroes books, but it is something that is employed. In the Legion of Superheroes, uh, the ones I've read, where it's like the Encyclopedia Galactica or something, where every once in a while a little uh, narration box will pop up in the comic that kind of describes a little bit, not as humorous, but I'm like, I wonder if if, uh, somebody from the Legion of Super bloggers, like Ange or somebody, if you're listening to this, please chime in and let us know if that that bit or that common little trope or motif of of the Legion of Superheroes appear before or after the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy because i wouldn't be surprised if they if they took this that from this where that you know you have that but i don't know we got these these alien races like the vogons who are just basically like you know the the uncaring just kind of like you know suburban sprawl developers but you know like and, and things and 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 one of their one of their running things is that they have terrible poetry <laughs> I thought of you, actually, when I was reading uh, my, this, because the, of that poem you like to read to your classes. Yeah, the, the second of the vomit poem. Yes. The, it's the very first page of Chapter 7, 
Um, it says it starts off that Vogon poetry is, of course, the third. And I love I love the placement of phrases like, of course, right? The Vogon poetry is, of course, the third, like, as we all know, right? The third worst in the universe. The second worst of that is the Asgots of Kriya during mm-hmm. the recitation by their poet master Grunthos of the flatulent of his poem, All to Ode to a Small Lump of Green Putty I Found in My Armpit One Midsummer Morning, Four of an Audience Died of Eternal Hemorrhaging, and the President of the Mid-Galactic Arts Nobbling Council Survived by Gnawing One of His Own Legs Off. But then you get to the second paragraph. Yes, I know! <laughs> <laughs> The very worst poetry of all perished along with its creator, Paula Nancy Millstone Jennings of Greenbridge, Essex, England, in the destruction of the planet Earth. And that's the <laughs> Yeah, it was, oh yeah, that was pretty hilarious that they made, yeah, a regular person. The Drop it there. <laughs> oh, just amazing. <laughs> I mean, is <laughs> I don't... <laughs> The question was, like, what do you think the point he's making is? Um, I don't even know if he has a point. I think he's just having fun with it or he's or or he's just he maybe he's he's having fun with the the pretense of a culture or or the way that, like, you know, you, you there's no accounting for taste in the universe or something. And that sometimes it's awful. Maybe he hated poetry. I don't know. I think it's just services a joke mm. you know that we there's bad art everywhere and you know um we all have to endure it i don't know what do you think um yes i think it also you know goes to that improbability uh as well because you would expect mm. uh well it's just improbable that a real life person real life you know what i'm saying would be yeah. the the cause of all of this um but yeah about art i don't know because poetry it, i feel like poetry does get a bad rap uh, which is interesting because I'm actually reading a book about the beat generation now, and it's basically poetry and jazz. But, you know, mm-hmm. because if people don't understand it, they think like, oh, it's terrible. So I think it is kind of making fun of like an art form that people have, it seems like, always had trouble with to some extent and then just mm-hmm. taken to the extreme. Yeah. And then um, <laughs> there's also a bit, I mean – there's also like little bits in here, like um, when they when they activate the like where they they, they look at the improbability drive and everything, and uh, and he's against the door of a Arthur's against the door of a cubicle and he tells Ford that there's an infinite number of monkeys outside who want to talk about the script for Hamlet that they've worked out, mm. you know, just like little bits like that. Oh, that's and, right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So there's a couple like more thematic questions that I have as as we go through this. Um, Slarder Bartfast oh, says that he would rather, again. yes, <laughs> says that he would rather quote far rather be, be happy than write on any day. Do you think this is a good perspective mm. to have in life, or why or why not? You know, I feel like this is, and I like when this happens on our mm. show. I feel like there's a connection he, between this quote and what we talked about in the last episode with doubt of mm. sort of like the innocence. Or remember we were talking about because uh, Sister James, her eyes were open to everything. And so then she's kind of having a tough time after that. And so he discussed, yeah, yeah, what what is better? So it's almost like that because you kind of have to think being right uh, would mean that you know what you need to know. You have that wisdom. And so 
does that mean there's like a comparison between, you know, knowledge and not necessarily knowing everything? Um, and yeah, so this is, uh, you know, I feel like I would almost choose that happiness. <laughs> I mean, not to, you know, I wouldn't want to mm. seem ignorant or whatever, but just to have, I think, happiness rather than being right necessarily all the time, as long as I know I'm not in engaging in something that I know I'm going to be wrong going in on it, but maybe being happy in my like unknowledge. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, it's, do you think that's yeah, a stretch to compare it to doubt or no, do you no. think there are similarities there? I think there are definitely similarities there because it's not necessarily ignorance is bliss because that's a whole other kind of philosophy on life. This is more like with doubt it's like you know is there satisfaction in being right when you know that like ultimately somebody is being hurt you know mm-hmm. um or that like you know or the, or and 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 in, and in some cases i think that's that's a moral quandary you know i mean is the right answer always the right thing the moral thing to to follow you know is it better and and uh and and that is something that comes up here like you know how does how how is morality presented in this novel <laughs> how is morale um, right and wrong yeah you know? i feel like from the outside like as readers we can tell what's right and wrong but it doesn't seem like mm-hmm. the characters have too much of a morality and i'm just thinking about zaphod beeblebrocks like he clearly yeah. uh doesn't understand the difference between right and wrong and the fact that trillion you know goes along with it um i'm trying to think about ford if ford does anything um, and then Arthur, I think, is is pretty innocent as well. So I feel like it depends on the character, but it more seems like once you get out in the universe, um, that morality is kind of like a, I don't know, a sliding scale. And maybe mm-hmm. people don't ad- address it as much or they have their own ideas. And I think it's more like desire based, like if this is what I want to do, hey, I want to steal the ship. I need the presidency, so I'm going to do it. Uh, They don't necessarily contemplate um, with that issue. But at the end, which I was actually really scared because Arthur, you know, he was going to have his brain taken out of Mm -hmm. him. And I wasn't sure what was happening. I thought at least Trillian, I'm hoping, because she had done something to Zaphod, like pinched him or something, uh, which was an interesting detail. But then you find out, like, they all actually help him out. And so I thought that was a huge turning point for the majority of the characters that they're kind of doing something that's selfless and they end up helping Arthur. So I think there is a change, but for the most part, a lot of these characters are rather selfish and I think um, their morality is a bit skewed if they have any. It's, it's that sort of like you have a sense of morality that is ultimately self-serving. Yeah. Like you know what is right or you, it's like, you know, what's right and wrong. But when you act on it, it's in your own you, – you always – even if it's not completely in your own self-interest, you're always going to get something out of it. You know, like you've never – like you could ne- – like the type of people who could never actually do a completely selfless, selfless act. You know, that they, they know that what they're doing is, is morally correct, but they also stand some, to gain something from it. So there, I felt like that is kind of throughout 
the the novel where where there's you know there is a that there maybe is a sense of morality mm. in the universe but not everybody follows that code because it doesn't always um either apply to them or it doesn't always work for them and they want to do they want to you know what is in it for me is essentially the thing that guides it which is maybe a comment on humanity and human nature you know we do tend to be selfish beings you know especially in like you know a capitalistic system where we're like you know what what what's in it for me is is tends to be a question that you know uh, that that often gets asked, or what are you going to do with that, or what are you going to get out of it, or are you getting paid for that? So, like, you know, what do you stand to gain from your decisions? Is something that is is contemplated, even if and some people do contemplate it as part of a moral quandary. Um, I'm not saying that we all do, but you know, there there's certainly enough people there that perhaps he's making that point. And uh, I guess that dovetails into like, you know, we're not the most intelligent beings on Earth. <laughs> we are. It's the mice. Isn't that shocking? Why the mice? <laughs> I, Aside from the irony of it, yeah, you, know, you I think, make them run around in cages. Yep, I think that is, uh, you know, the greatest part. I think is the irony. I think it's to almost knock humans down a bit from their their egotism, just that we're the greatest species, um, we're at the top of the food chain, etc. And so, what would happen if actually? We're, we're going to take the people, the entities that are at the, the mm-hmm. species that are at near the bottom of the, the food chain and ones that you've really taken their agency away from them. And now they are the most intelligent. So, yeah, I think it's the irony. I think it's a bit of a jab at, at what we as humans think of ourselves. And mm-hmm. uh, it's really well done. And I sensed something was afoot, if only because the mice got out. And I remember when they left the ship there was the detail which again goes back to i think just the well written nature of this book because there was a detail where trillion noticed some motion at the corner of her eye and she looked back and couldn't see anything and i thought oh it's those mice what's gonna happen here so just little things yeah um like that were were great but yeah that's what i'm thinking Okay, yeah, I, I can agree, I agree with you. There's a there's almost like a pride cometh of all yes. for the fall bit yep. with here with with humanity and and uh, yeah, just the great irony of this thing that we've you know these things that we use for pets and experiments are actually way more intelligent than we'll ever be. Speaking of things that are way more intelligent than than we'll ever be that that literally get worshipped. Deep thought is the is the computer that is created to give the the answer to life, universe, and the everything and everything. And the answer is forty-two. Yes. And they're and they're like and and the the, the beauty of this is that they create the computer and it takes seven point five million years to come up with the Ooh. answer, but they don't know what the question was. Yeah. So they create the Earth to, to create, which is the other computer that's going to generate the question. And the Earth was just about to reveal what the question was before the Vogons bulldozed it, which is again hilarious to me because it's just like again bureaucracy a, but a but a literal religion crops up around the computer mm, the philosophers so, the philosophers yeah. and all that so what is what is he saying about religion and philosophy mm. and stuff you because know, this clearly he's got a commentary here he does and i think not only here but throughout there are several moments of you know talking about god and i think god poofed himself out of existence at one point because mm-hmm. they proved him somehow is very complicated. Um, but but yeah, oh, because faith was like proven by something is like, oh, because of that, then he he poofed back. Um, yeah, this is very interesting. I think, gosh, well, you know, religion or cults, right? They kind of pop up 
with any sort of fervor. I think something that people are like super excited about or want to know more. Um, I, I guess maybe just that religion is, it can be extreme and, um, kind of pokes fun that maybe it can also be trying to find the word um not silly but absurd yeah you know just like oh it's pop and we're worshiping this computer we're excited for this day kind of thing um just like the absurdity of the the faith and the proving and all of that stuff so potentially i mean that's what i see yeah i see that too i I, I doing a little looking into um, to Adams. I think he was uh, his views kind of fell on the atheist side of things. But I never, I don't get, I get that he's he's trying to point out absurdity. But I, I and maybe uh, maybe our views on this might be different. I don't feel that he's being mean, though. Um, I think he's just he's having. To me, it seems like he's having fun with it, um, especially. And you mentioned like you know things like a cult. And stuff or things that get and, and and granted, as much as we have this worship, you know, we could talk about God and everything and and, and, and and religion in itself, we could talk about like, you know, money being an object of worship as well. So, you know, it might be a capital. Is your Kindle going crazy? Yeah. Okay. At yes. first I thought it was mine. Okay. I have my I have my uh, my document open on my Kindle. Oh, okay. I have it on the so because um, at the very, very beginning, um, it says the planet, they're talking about Earth. So the very, very first page is, is kind of the hitchhiker's guide page about Earth. And it says this planet has or has rather had a problem, which was this. Most of the people living on it were unhappy for pretty much of the time. Many solutions were suggested for this problem, but most of these were largely concerned with the movement of small green pieces of paper, which is odd because on the whole, it wasn't the small green piece of paper that were unhappy. So it was kind of, which is kind of... You know, it you know it kind of telegraphs this whole answer. You know, the whole forty-two thing and the whole worship arrest centering around this idea of, of what the what's the problem and how do we solve it? You know, mm-hmm. and, and the people on Earth are unhappy, and we all think money is the answer to all that and everything. Um, yeah, so I think he's he's also having a little fun with that too. But yeah, and and it's funny because the other the other religion that you think of sprouting up and around a, sci- a science fiction novelist is uh, Scientology. Oh, yeah. We're true. not going to read Battlefield Earth, nor are we going to read Dianetics on this podcast. I had no idea <laughs> it was based off of those two. Well, L. Ron Hubbard wrote wrote both of those. Oh, okay. He started Scientology. L. Ron Hubbard is basically if Gene Roddenberry had decided to form a cult instead of just creating Star Trek. Mm-hmm. But um, but anyway, I just a couple more questions, really. I'm just having having just a lot of fun just like recalling mm-hmm. how funny this book is, to be honest with you. Um, I mentioned in the background of the novel that Adams, uh, you know, he, he winds up being pretty prescient in terms of some of the alien technology uh, the guide being on a tablet. Mm. So there's even a bit like where he's like, you know, it's on this tablet because if it was a real book, it would be like, you know, it's like Wikipedia, basically. Yeah. You know, it's just like it could not fit uh, in your hand. And then you have the Babel fish, even though a universal translator is still. A oh, that'd trope. be so amazing. You know, and, and stuff like that. And the, the question is, like, you know, is it just a way around a plot hole? Uh, is there thematic significance, you know, like, is, is this just something for him to have fun with? You know, what, what do you, what do you make out of, out of, out of all of these? It's just like, you know, let me just invent this thing because it's a solution to like, you know, well, how are they going to understand him or something? Yeah. You know, I, it could be, um, but I feel like 
given what the rest of this novel has been and that it's been really smart and clever and witty. I feel like there's something more about it. And uh, it is funny just to think, you know, there are probably all these other past science fiction novels that people have been thinking about, you know, um, I don't know, hoverboards or something like that, or, you know, are those little scooter self-propelled stuff. And here it is. So I feel like it's, Flying cars. Yeah, so something that makes sense, right? Because it, it's a huge yeah. tome, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Or there's just a lot of data, and how else could yeah. it be used? And uh, not taking along all of these Encyclopedia Britannicas, but in a yeah something that you can view. So I think, I think it, uh, I think that they do have significance, uh, and I think the Babblefish, you know, the significance obviously of the name there, and mm-hmm. I think there are other Universal translators that we've potentially seen, but yeah, I feel like it's more than just a plot hole, given what we, you know, given the the rest of the novel as proof. Yeah, yeah, it, and it does. I mean, granted, it does follow in the great tradition of like when we were like, talking about Fahrenheit. And you have the the seashells in the ears, radio, and then the the wall television, and the the mechanical hound, and and in in um oh yeah what's it we call it in eighty four you have stuff like the uh, did you mean hound of the Baskervilles? No, no, the hound, the mechanical hound, in, in that sniffs him out, in Montag out in front. Oh, 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 yes, yes, yes. You know, yeah. the, the, which, which, you know, you could say. I mean, granted, we've seen robot dogs being developed in labs and stuff, but we've also seen drones, you know, and things like that. And then in 1984, you have surveillance technology and things like that. So, you know, and this is stuff that was written back in the 40s and the 50s. So, it's he's continuing along a, a, a grand tradition of just like you know future technology that eventually comes to pass in some way and yeah but you're right like you know that and it's funny how the babblefish is just essentially like a pill you take in order to understand everybody <laughs> in your ear in your ear and yeah. it's just like really weird because like i think of things being inserted inserted in people's Ooh. ears like that and i think of uh, wrath of khan you know yeah. <laughs> which is a much more uncomfortable scene than yeah more torture device that's what i was thinking like oh yeah. gosh anything that's being stuck in like an orifice always seems Ugh. like it's going to be a, a bad thing you know clockwork orange or like 1984 wasn't there yeah. stuff happening there they were gonna. They strapped a rat cage to his face at the end yep. of the novel. Remember, yep. they were gonna. They were gonna have the rat gnaws face yep. off. Do it to Julia. Um, but uh, but yeah, I just and and the idea that that the answer comes from a great supercomputer, you know, like these sorts of things. Um, perhaps in some level, it's also a commentary on our own tech, on our own desire for more technology or our own over reliance on some sort of technology. Maybe going back to the computer in forty two and all that too. Uh, now, I don't know if Adams was saying that then, but we could certainly say it now regarding, you know, Deep Thought being the Internet and being this sort of like the thing that we go to for all the answers. And yet <laughs> people still don't believe half the, sh- you know, like or there's still false information. So, the, you know, perhaps our over-reliance on technology is being parodied there as well. Yeah. I do have one more question before we kind of. Get to, get to get to the end of the stuff, and it's some of the more famous stuff in here. I've, I've mentioned forty-two. The cover of the book says "Don't panic," and there's a the whole thing is about a towel. Um, the towel is so important to the hitchhikers. So, like, why does you know why? <laughs> why just why that? Why all? Why all that? <laughs> why Go that? For it. Yeah, thanks, Tom. <laughs> okay, don't panic. 
I think that is, and it's on the front of the Hitchhiker's Guide, right? Um, yes, like right on the yeah, cover. Yeah, because I think Neil Gaiman did some sort of commentary. So when I was trying to find mm-hmm. the cover to our episode, I kept seeing that. I feel like it's a way to, you know, you're in this situation and it's almost like a, you know, inside here is the answer to what you need to get out of this potential situation, which is sometimes interesting because I think the earth only had two words, right? It was mostly harmless or something like that. Yeah. Right. (laughs) So that's why I think about like, don't panic you know, look up what you need to look up and maybe there's something uh, in there. Mm. Um, But I think it's also maybe ironic, though I don't know if I'll be using it correctly, just that it seems like as a hitchhiker, you get yourself into all sorts of really bad situations. I mean, Ford was stranded on Earth for 15 years. (laughs) So so maybe it's also like a laughable thing that uh, you've gotten yourself into this and there's like, you know, you're going to have to deal with it. So might as well not panic, but figure something out. I will give you the the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has a few things to say on the subject of towels. I and, and as an aside, I love the fact that again, going back to the sort of satire of humanity and our own sense of self-importance, mm. humans being the most you know the most quote powerful things on Earth, so to speak, are mostly harmless is the only two words in the entire yep. like you know we think we're the center of the damn universe and guess what mostly harmless that's all that s has to say. Well, a towel, it says, is about the most massively useful thing an interstellar hitchhiker can have. Partly, it has great practical value. You can wrap it around you for warmth as you bound across the cold moons of Jaglin Beta. You can lie on it in the brilliant marble-sanded beaches of Centrigrinus V, inhaling the heady sea vapors. You can sleep under it beneath the stars which shine so redly. And so he goes through all of these things, and you can dry off, you can dry yourself off if it still seems to be clean enough. You can wave your towel in emergencies as a direct signal. All these uses for a towel, um, and it has immense psychological value. Mm. For if some reason a strag, which is a non-hitchhiker, discovers that a hitchhiker has his towel with him, he will automatically assume that he is also in possession of a toothbrush, washcloth, soap, tin of biscuits, flask, com- compass, map, ball of string, nap spray wet weather gear spacesuit etc etc and then we'll happily lend the hitchhiker any of these or a dozen other items that the hitchhiker might accidentally have quote lost what the strag will think is that any man who can hitch the length and breadth of a galaxy rough it slum it struggle against terrible odds win through and all and still know where his towel is is clearly a man to be reckoned mm-hmm. hence a phrase that has been passed into hitchhiking slang is hey you sass that hoopy ford prefect there's a fruit who really knows his towel is, and the word sass means no be aware of, meet, have sex with. Hoopy means really together guy. Fruit means really amazingly together guy. <laughs> so just this, this, it's literally, it's like three paragraphs of this entire novel devoted to all of the practical and, and important uses of a towel. Mm-hmm. Again, absurdism. Yep. Not absurdism in the, in the in the Camus sort of way, just this absurdist humor of like this random everyday object that we take for granted, mm-hmm. and you know, and and get annoyed when you know we're at a clean one, yeah, because we should do the laundry. <laughs> um, you know, it's just like it's a towel, yeah. You know? But at the same time, it's like this is the most important thing. I just. Yeah, um, I think, yeah, the connection to the mice kind of thing, too. And like you said, it's mm-hmm. something we take for granted. It's normal every day. And it's the exact opposite of what 
the the Hitchhiker's Guide of the Galaxy, like all of those things that are labeled in there, the drinks that they talk about, the species, they are yeah. the opposite of this towel. So, and it's something that any species, I guess, could be aware of, even Earth people. So, it's a nice contrast as well. Yeah, which which thinking about it really makes me think that I would have laughed my butt off through this novel had I read it in college because like I remember especially my freshman year of college where I just found a lot of humor in the most random stuff and this this would have been right up my alley so so I guess you know there's only really one question more question to ask here which is is this required reading <laughs> oh <laughs> it's funny that this only just started um <laughs> You know what? I feel like it is. I think you know, at the beginning when I first read it, when I was first starting to read it and I first finished it, I felt like, eh, is it really, though? But I think it is a classic. I think it's a sci-fi classic. I think it's a sci-fi comedy classic. And I think it's something that is timeless and can be read by people of all ages. And like you said previously, younger people can read it and then read it again and get something more out of it and it's you know not edgy i think i only read one swear word which is actually rather refreshing yeah. so you know yeah. it's not it's fun and it's witty and it's smart and so i do think that and, and especially in the current time that we are in and as a friend of ours says or you know a nemesis depending if your name is tom shag you know find your joy i think this is one of those things that it, it's a great way to potentially i think unburden you know your concerns and read something that is fun and also has some social and political commentary as well that you can laugh at yeah yeah i would and i would i would add that this is i've never taught the novel i think it would be a great introduction to humor and satire uh because it's it's bite it's it can be biting in its political commentary but it's not um but it's just pointing out the general absurdity of it all and it's not like you know uh it doesn't require too much of you know like too much of in the know of something on the order of like um like jonathan as much as i like jonathan swift i think you have to know too much going into jonathan swift to really get the jokes that he's telling and like all of his travels um and stuff like that so you're not going to get the humor here you get the humor i think anybody really would so um i would i would add to that as sort of the teachable aspect of it um so we do have a little bit of feedback. Oh, okay. Just um, both comments. Uh, there's Kirk. Uh, Kirk Grunwald was the person who asked us if we have a master list of books covered on the episode, and if we've done The Godfather yet. Um, you had replied that you're putting your intern Tom on it. So I don't know who that person is, but we'll get Alan to do it for oh, us. Oh gosh! Um, I didn't remember the we... Godfather part. Is that a recent? I, I'm looking at the Facebook page right now. Oh, okay. Um, so it must have been it must have been today. Um, yes, it's a 26 minutes ago as I was looking at it. It was oh, probably gotcha. about an hour as an hour ago as recording this. Um, the first part of it is, yeah, I, we are going to – hopefully by the time this episode comes out, there will be a page on the website devoted to just a running list of the books covered with links to the show notes so that you can, you can link to download, etc. If you go to our page on the Two True Freaks website, Website, you can scroll through just the whole thing, and it's just it's just kind of the you know the the landing site for each of the episodes. Uh, but you know, I'll try to put it in more compact, compact format, so where it'll be like you know title and link. He also asked about the Godfather, not yet. 
I think that would be interesting to cover. Um, that might be uh, that, and I think that might be one of those times where um, there have been a couple of books where I thought, you know, looking at the book along with a film adaptation, because there are certain, but like this had a film adaptation, but like or and a BBC series adaptation, which. You know, um, I've heard very good things about the BBC TV adaptation. Mm-hmm. The movie adaptation is, I think, forgettable is probably the thing that I hear the most. I, people didn't necessarily like it, and I think it's just one of those things. It's kind of like, you know, it's it's out there. And But, like, if you look at, say, The Godfather, I think, is a really good example of this. Um, and it, like you mentioned you had read The Shining. The Shining mm-hmm. is another one that where you read the book, and it's almost like you have to look at the movie and discuss the movie. Because, um, at least, especially in the case of The Godfather, the Godfather has outshone its source material so well, so I'm going to put a pin in that and um, and and consider it for a future episode. Okay. Is it that um, long though? I feel like it's a long book. It might be one of those where we my parents had discuss it, it in advance and like, okay, we have yeah. two months to read it. I'll look it up on. Yeah, good I'd have to look it up. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the film the film is is the film is not as long as Godfather Part Two. But it is it's like a two and a half hour movie. The Godfather Part Two is like. <laughs> three three and a half hours okay. uh, 448 okay, so, we... so actually not as okay, long as so, i thought okay robert ward has commented on our aeneid episode he says i'm not going to lie this was a difficult read for me in high school we covered a little bit of the odyssey but not too much and this is really the only classic roman piece i've read i watched and shared a number of videos and while they helped i still find myself rereading again and again to fully comprehend the passages this is a work that's 100 percent improved by reading along with somebody i agree there stella's clear mm-hmm. passion for the work is obvious oh i'm so glad and I can see why a student of hers would have a better grasp of it than me. I'm envious that they have her to go over it with them. In the future, if I decide to, I want to dive into the Odyssey, is there a preferred translation? Fitzgerald again, question mark. Um, I think people generally go with Fagels. Is that what you do for your class, Tom? Um, the, the, the copy actually we use Fitzgerald because it's in a textbook that we oh, have okay. and therefore it's an available copy. The Fitzgerald translation is fine. I actually like Fagel's translation because I just felt like Fagel's translation is um it, it's just more dynamic. It feels more action packed, you know, like it just it, it jumps off the page a little bit at me. There is a newer translation. By Emily Wilson, yes. I believe her yep. name is. I have it. I have not read it, but I've heard really, really good things about it. So I will have to report back to you on that because it's my, it's on my, it's on my bookshelf at home yep. uh, here at home, and I, I plan on reading it at some point. But yeah, Fitzgerald's fine if you find it. Um, uh, Fagels, I, I really enjoyed. I read the Fagels for the Aeneid because that was because I had read the Fagels for the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. I you don't have to read the Iliad if you don't want. To. <laughs> Um, actually, yeah, Tom doesn't like if it. you're going to read the Iliad, you're not going to get the gods part out of this. But one of the best adaptations of the Iliad I've ever read is Eric Shanower's graphic novel series, Age of Bronze. Oh, interesting. Image put it out and, and it's available in, it was a black and white. I think they're putting out some colorized versions of it now. And I think there's like five or six or seven different books so far. And it is essentially the Iliad, but it's told completely like all of the uh, God stuff is all kind of like, there's a little hallucinatory aspect of it. So mm. you don't have the, the Pantheon. It's really just all ground level. So there's Achilles and there's a, um, it made the, it, it made me want to reread the Iliad, but it made me appreciate the story of the Trojan War. So I would recommend that for that one. But yeah, so, um, and I feel like, but yeah, so yeah, the, well, once we get, 
I mean, even online you could do this, but I feel like you could potentially mm-hmm. read the f- intro, like the actual intro, not the introduction to the novel. But, you know, actually start yeah. off with book one and read the, the beginning because I think you're going to get a, a good sense with the invocation of the muse and everything of how do you feel yes. with this language. So if you want to try out Fitzgerald Fagels and then this new one and then see which mm-hmm. one you feel is best. And you can I think Google Books usually gives you the first several pages. So maybe do that and yeah. see which one you like better. That is a great suggestion. That is a great suggestion. Uh, he also commented on our Doubt episode. Uh, he said, I applaud and laugh at Stella's bravery to face such classic novels that are frequently considered impenetrable. I believe you were referring to James Joyce's book, um, <laughs> Ulysses, which you have been reading. And um, I don't remember if I said this on air or if I said this in another context, that a friend lent me his copy. Yeah. I got about two <laughs> chapters in. I mailed it back to him with a post-it on oh it that gosh. said, I'm sorry, I tried. Oh, my god. Um, last week was the only week I was out of work and gladly back. This is back into Robert's email. Oh, wow. back, I'm gladly back to working. But similar to Stella, I was prepping my two-read stack into a proper lineup to pick from – during the layoff i don't have such pop culturally cemented classics like war and peace because that was the other one you were reading and ulysses though i've never been uh, curious to dive into them and definitely only going to read them if covered here um well guess what (laughs) no i just no Gosh. There is a bridge too yeah, far. I'm sure there is. It is James Joyce. <laughs> um, uh, I War and Peace is kind of on my to read list. To be honest with you, um, I don't have a. I have like I think I have like a public domain copy off of like Project Gutenberg mm. or Kindle Free Books or something. I actually want to get one of the more recent translations because I think there's a translation by the people who did my copy of Crime and Punishment. Yes, the married so couple. That up. Yes, yeah, 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 that's what I used. Okay, and and I really liked my my copy of Crime and Punishment, so I was like, all right, I'll go with that. My first choice for Tolstoy probably will be Anna Karenina first, mm. only because I already have a copy. Okay. So, uh, yeah. yeah. But no, I, you could not pay me enough to read. <laughs> I will um, say, just to comment on that, War and Peace, I actually really enjoyed, and mm. I think it's looking at its length is really intimidating. But yeah. it felt like when I was reading it, it was like Les Mis, where that was actually okay. not as complex, as, I think, as both of us mm-hmm. thought it would be. Like, it reads really well. Uh, there's a lot of history, you know, because obviously this, the war situation, but the characters mm-hmm. are really what kept me pushing forward. So I really liked it. Ulysses by page one, and, you know, Tom can, can say, uh, I told you so, but literally <laughs> by page one, I thought, I – I have no idea what's going on. What have I just done to myself? And I posted on Twitter and all these people came out of the woodwork and were like commenting about Ulysses. You know, I finished it and I thought I was pretty good with Virginia Woolf's uh, stream of consciousness, but this was beyond uh. even that. It was so weird. I've watched a couple of videos. I've even seen a little comic where they did, you know, the comparison and what time it was and what book of, but you know what? I don't, think it's as worth people's time and apparently people really love it they go on pilgrimages and you know oh, it's like there's a whole like cult yeah. around james joyce and i'm just it's like crazy. it's crazy but he apparently i was reading that he like intentionally made it this obtuse and, and it was like chuckling to himself evilly that you know professors oh. are going to wonder what these things are for years and i'm like why are you intentionally making it this difficult so i would say if you're gonna you know do something war and peace uh which was not as complicated 
complicated as I originally thought, but it's just that that heavy page thing. But Ulysses is not as worthwhile. Okay. Um, well, we're not reading Ulysses. Uh, <laughs> what are we reading? Oh, man. Yeah, it was funny because I was texting with Tom about that. And I think – I don't know what I said. I may have said like, hmm, or okay, and he just says no because he was reading into it as if I was going to pick it for our next read, which I I'm always reading into that like that. <laughs> he was very suspicious. But actually we're going to read a Stephen King, not The Shining, but The Green Mile. All right. Cool. Um, I, this is our first Stephen King novel. It is. I thought we should go from the mice that in Hitchhikers to uh, Mr. Jingles, who is in the Green Mile. So there's a nice little segue. All right. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. Maybe I'll bust up Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats name or something. I don't know. <laughs> oh, gosh. All right. Until then, uh, so the Green Mile, that'll be our next episode. Uh, and until then, you can check us out on the blog, follow us on Twitter, on Facebook and everything. And as always, uh, leave us feedback, email in. We always love hearing from you guys. Even if it's on an older episode, we would love to continue our conversations about all the books that we've read. And uh, thank you very much for listening and take care. Thanks for the fish. Yes. So long and thanks for all the fish. Good night. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two troops. That's two troops. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcast. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next